Good morning, Grace Fellowship. It is good to be here and get to open our Bibles together and uh, get to look at what God's Word has for us today. And uh, I'm really excited about it. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them and turn them to Romans chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you that you can use. Uh, We're walking through Romans, as many of you know, and we've completed now three chapters of this awesome book. That's that's a feat. Uh, And I have to tell you that as we continue moving forward uh, in sermon collab every week as all the teachers of our body get together and work through uh, this text, we continue to have our minds blown again and again and again at the wonderful news we have in Christ. It just keeps getting better week after week after week as we continue to turn and see more and more perspectives of our awesome God and our Savior Jesus and how he's made this work accessible to us. So I'm excited and ready to share another portion of it with you today. We'll be reading the first eight verses of chapter four, but before I begin, uh, just as you get a a little kind of pre what happened before when you watch a show on television, I want to give you kind of how we got here really, really quickly. Uh, Paul has spent a considerable amount of time in Romans one through three indicting humanity as guilty of sin before a holy God. He's also spent lots of time in these three chapters deconstructing anyone's worldview that thinks they can make things right with God. All this is very dark and depressing, but then in chapter 3, verse 21, he reveals the good news. This is that God forgives all men who place their faith in Jesus. The word Paul uses to help us understand this forgiveness is the word justification, Paul says that God justifies all men who place their faith in Jesus' propitiatory work. And this is another big word Paul uses to simply describe what Jesus has accomplished. This is how I explain it to my kids. We have all disobeyed God and therefore stand guilty before him, awaiting our punishment, just as the catechism read. Because God is holy, our punishment is death. But because God loves us, he sends Jesus to earth to live in perfect obedience, as we should have, and take our punishment for us. Jesus dies so that we don't have to. So his death satisfies or propitiates God's righteous judgment against us. Now, through faith in Jesus, we stand forgiven or justified. In verse 27 of chapter 3, Paul continues testifying that God's plan has, is, and always has been to justify humanity apart from works which leaves no room for boasting. No room for boasting. Jacob showed us this really well last week, uh, summing it up with the Clint Eastwood line, deserving's got nothing to do with it, right? That'll stick. So in our text today, Paul continues proving his point by going all the way back to the Old Testament, back, 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 back to the patriarch Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, the Jewish faith. So let's read the first eight verses in chapter Four. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, your word gives life. And not just any life, God, your word gives abundant life. And as I've got the privilege to bask, walk in, be exposed to, and I hope believe, God, I believe in what your word says this morning. I pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help everyone in this room to hear your word today, to understand it, and to believe it, that they may have abundant life now and forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in today's text, Paul lays down some radical ideas for both Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul, being a Jew, knew that his Jewish kinfolk had a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Lots of misunderstandings, but specifically a misunderstanding of the patriarch Abraham. For the Jew, Abraham was the Don. Hopefully you know what I mean by that. He was the ultimate example of the Jewish faith. Ancient Jewish literature read like this about Abraham. Abraham was a great father of many nations. No one was found like him in glory who kept the law of the Most High and entered into covenant with him and established the covenant in his flesh and was found faithful in testing Sounds like a blameless man, right? But what do the scriptures say about Abraham? That's Paul's question to the Jews, and it should always be our question, church, to one another. What do the scriptures say? What we're told in the scriptures about Abraham is that he was given, or he was the great, 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 great grandson. Don't count my greats there, they may not be accurate. But he was the great-grandson of Shem, whose daddy, if you remember, was Noah. We're told that Abraham uh, lived with his father, Terah, and some other family in a place called Haran. This is Genesis 12. And at a ripe old age of 205, Abraham's daddy, Terah, died. And after the death of his father, the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. We then have several chapters in Genesis that document the life of Abraham, his wife Sarah, and their nephew Lot. This leads us to Genesis 15, which is what Paul quotes in our text today. Again, we see in Genesis 15 that God comes to Abraham, and this time he promises Abraham that even though him and Sarah have not been able to bear a child and they're growing very old, God is going to make their offspring as innumerable as the stars. That's a big promise. And we read in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. And it's this verse that Paul pulls out to prove his point that we are justified by faith alone. Because before Abraham had done anything truly righteous, God counted him righteous on the basis of Jesus' propitiatory work. Did I catch you off guard there? Let me repeat. Before Abraham had done anything truly righteous, God 
counted him righteous on the basis of Jesus' propitiatory work. Some of you might be thinking, well, I I thought it was his faith that saved him. Nope, you missed it. We're not saved by our faith. According to Paul, we're saved by Jesus' work that satisfies God's righteous judgment against us. It's through faith of that work that we are counted as righteous. Just like Abraham was way back then. This might be a radical idea for some of you who've never put these pieces together as Paul's putting together for us in Romans to think that Abraham was justified, counted righteous by Jesus' work thousands of years before Jesus ever came to earth. But that is precisely what Paul is saying here. Abraham was counted righteous the very same way before God that you and I are counted righteous. In fact, it's the only way that God has ever saved anyone. Paul wants it to be made clear that salvation has always been and will always be by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Now for the Jews, this is a radical idea. Because the Jewish people, you see, had always read Genesis 15, 6 through the lens of Genesis 22, which is the well-known story of Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar before God. So get this, they read about his faith through the lens of his faithfulness. In fact, the Jews actually didn't even know a difference between faith and faithfulness. They were one thing for them. One who had faith was faithful. And one who was faithful had faith. And you might be thinking, sitting here, well, I I thought that's what we believe. Isn't that the whole point of the book of James? Well, no. No, that's not the point of the book of James. The point of the book of James is to say that anyone who claims to be an apple tree but produces oranges is not an apple tree. That's the point of James. James. What Paul is saying here, listen closely, is that when you believe, God counts you righteous. He counts you righteous. He doesn't wait to see if you're going to produce fruit and then on that basis count you righteous. No, God, he goes all in when you believe, just like he did with Abraham. It is good. When you believe, you get everything. Forgiveness, justification, the Holy Spirit, all God's promises, fellowship with the body of Christ, on and on. It's all yours when you believe. That's Paul's point here. So say what you want about Abraham, but it was through Abraham's believing God Through his believing, he was counted righteous. (laughs) Read verse 1 and 2 with me now in that light. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You You see what Paul's doing there? He's stripping away the grounds that anyone might stand on for righteousness. That's what he's doing here. And he's doing it by telling the whole story. The whole story. Paul knows that the natural human tendency is to gloss over history and historical figures. To paint events in a light that really aren't true to the event. And, and what this does over time, church, is it changes the narrative. You know, sometimes we do this. Often we do it positively, maybe by taking a historical figure and highlighting all the good they did while remaining silent on all the vices they had. We definitely see this at funerals, don't we? 
You're never going to go to a funeral and hear about how Billy, God rest his soul, was an abject failure at every part of life. Nope. We're going to take that one moment Billy had when he was six, and he shared his juice box with Susie on the playground, and that, really more than anything else in Billy's life, characterized him as a giver. That's funny because you know it's true. But that's essentially, church, what the Jews had done with Abraham. They had placed him on a pedestal over hundreds of years, even thousands of years. And they've told stories to their kids and grandkids, highlighting all his victories and lowlighting or even omitting his failures. Therefore, the Jews came to believe that Abraham was righteous before God because he was faithful to God. And uh, yes, of course, that meant he had faith, right? What Paul is desiring to do here by bringing Abraham up is to drive a wedge between the ideas of faith and faithfulness. And as I already mentioned, the Jewish people understood these two things to be the same. Synonymous at least. Therefore, God's justification of Abraham was wholly appropriate in the Jewish mindset. Because why? He deserved it. He deserved it. He was faithful. But Paul's point is that God's justification wasn't because he was faithful, rather because he had faith. He believed God. Now, some of you will sit here and say, oh yes, 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 but his faith will render him faithful, Corey. That's what faith does or it isn't true faith. Really? What about after he was rendered righteous, and what about that lying problem he had, where every time he got in a real tough jam and he was worried about what the truth might bring forth, he just told a lie? What about Abraham's lack of patience that caused him to sleep with his maidservant, Hagar, because Sarah wasn't getting pregnant? What about the right at the beginning in Genesis 12 when God tells Abraham, leave your kinfolk behind and move on. I want want to call you out. And he takes his nephew Lot with him. Church, it's so important that we understand Abraham in his true light that reveals his faith and his failures to show that his righteousness was not earned but rather according to verse 3 look at verse 3 it was counted to him because why he believed God it was counted to him now that word is important but I want to turn the spotlight away from Abraham for a second and I want to put it on us is that okay good thank you for your permission When you think about your life, when I think about my life, do we look at it and think, well, it's a pretty faithful life. It's a pretty faithful life. I'm here today, right? I haven't had any huge moral failures. I've worked with integrity for decades. I mean, some of you may be sitting here going, I I didn't have sex before marriage. If, if things keep heading in the same direction that they're heading, I do believe on judgment day I'll stand before God and I'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Well, if that's how we think, then Paul has something to say to us in verse 4. Check it out. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his what? Due. Why does he say this? Well, he says this because there are two fundamentally different paths in this life. The first is doing your own accounting. That's the first path. This is the path that everyone who doesn't believe the gospel is on. It's the one that says, 
I will account for my works. I will receive my due. Now, obviously, that person doesn't know about or believe the truth that Paul's just laid out in Romans 1 through 3, where, as I said earlier, he totally deconstructs the idea that any person can make things right with God. They cannot. It's absolutely impossible. But the other path Paul lays out for us in verse 5. Check it out. To the one who does not work but believes in him who does what, church? Justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Whoa. Don't gloss over that one. Let's just read it again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. What does ungodly mean there in the Greek? It means wicked, real bad, no good. His faith is counted as righteousness. Ooh. <laughs> now this is a radical idea. It almost seems too radical, church. Romans 4, 5 is one of these scriptures that if you quote it in a conversation with another Christian, they'd go, whoa, 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 now, whoa, now. I, I think you're taking things there a little too far, brother. Nope. That's what God's word says. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Do you really believe God justifies the ungodly by simply believing in Jesus' propitiatory work? Do you believe that? Well, let me ask you another question. Do you really believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone? Do you believe that? Okay? All right? Then why, church, why do we have a tendency to always be trying to clean ourselves up? Why do we continue to try to white-knuckle our obedience? Why do we continue thinking things like God is displeased with us when we don't read our Bibles as if reading our Bibles would bring forth his pleasure? Good boy, good boy. Apart from Jesus' imputed righteousness, you are incapable of bringing forth the pleasure of God. If you think you are, go back and read Romans 1 through 3 because you didn't get it. If you're so focused on spiritual disciplines because you think they place you in or keep you in the righteousness of God, then you have forgotten or you didn't ever know how righteous God is. He's so righteous. There's absolutely nothing you brought to the table when God saved you. And there's absolutely nothing that you bring to the table as he continues to save you, sanctifying you. If you're saved, it's because you were ungodly. The kind of ungodly that after God saves you, people gasp and go, he saved him? He saved her? How could he? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? A father had two sons. One did his own accounting. Seemingly great kid. The other, obviously ungodly. A rebellious youth who ran off, squandered all of his dad's money on parties and reckless living. But seeing that this way wouldn't suffice, he went back home hoping to work as a servant in his father's house. But the father <laughs> instead welcomes his penitent son back in and he counts him righteous. By throwing him a massive party, giving the boy a robe, giving him a ring, and giving him a feast. But the other son, the, the, the great kid, he saw all this and he was very indignant. How could you accept this sinner? 
This rebel who so flagrantly rejected you and squandered your wealth. Why would you have him in your home? Because our God justifies the ungodly. That's why. Paul's goal in this passage, church, is to remove all grounds for boasting. The older brother in the prodigal story has no room for boasting. Paul says Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, has no room for boasting. You and I have no room for boasting. And if we do, Paul says, it's not before God. I love that little phrase, not before God. I think that's where many of us get off track. Instead of seeing more and more as God does, as he, more and more as God sees, seeing like God, we try to live the Christian life through the lens of our culture. Like the older, older brother in the story, we, we try to meet enough markers of righteousness so that we stay a good pace ahead of all the ungodly people, Right? Try to meet enough markers of righteousness so so that we stay a good pace ahead of them. And and this gives us reason to boast. This gives us reason for confidence. But not before God. Not before God. When we forget this, we begin to think unbiblically about sin and the gospel. Listen to Paul one more time. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. And now look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. (laughs) Did you hear this? If you are in Christ, I'm, I don't think I've ever been more excited about a text if you can't tell. If you are in Christ, the Lord does not count your sin. He doesn't count it. So then who's counting it? Are, are you? My? Be careful now. If you are, that might place you on the wrong path that we talked about earlier. You might be the older brother who does his own accounting. According to David here, God does not count your sin. (laughs) Paul is trying to make extra clear that you understand this radical good news. And I know some of you are already thinking. You're sitting there and you're, you're squirming, you're sweating, you're just like, uh, uh, how in the world are we going to uh, progress in holiness if we don't work, Corey? If we don't keep up with all the wrongs so that we don't do them again, how does this work? Well, what does the Scripture say? What, does the script, what do the Scripture say? Check it out. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. (laughs) Does it get better than that? Have we made some some, some next level tier? (laughs) You see, the problem with many of us, church, is not that we're too biblical. It's actually that we're not biblical enough. We still have our own understanding of righteousness. An understanding that is actually out of step with God's righteousness. Here's what I mean. When you hear the word righteous, your mind shouldn't go straight to actions or doing, behavior. Your mind should go, when you hear the word righteous, to the person of Christ. That's where your mind should go, to the person of Jesus. For there is no one in the scriptures who is called righteous that was not covered by the precious Blood of the righteous lamb. No one. And any righteous act those people did after being covered by the blood was only righteous because of the forensic declaration that God made over their lives. 
Do you get this? I love that Paul drills this point home by pointing to King David. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Psalm 32. That's what Psalm that is. So I want you to turn there. Because we're going to look at it. Here's why I love that Paul brings this psalm up, church. This specific psalm when he's making the radical claim that God justifies the ungodly. The reason I love that he brings it up is because it's one of uh, David's penitent psalms. What's known as, David's got like seven of these, I think. He's penitent psalms. Um, but, but here's the thing about this one. Uh, this is, this is, this, David probably wrote this after uh, he uh, lusted after a married woman committed adultery with that woman, uh, had a man murdered. You see, really bad stuff. But here's what I would say to us, that God help us if we think that this psalm is just a psalm when you've done something really bad. No. No, this psalm should be the everyday psalm for all who believe that God justifies the ungodly. This is our everyday anthem. All right, look at this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He counts none. And check this out. Look at this phrase. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. Wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I missed something. Uh, I, I mean, my spirit is with deceit, though. My, my spirit is with deceit. Really? Really? It's not what the Lord says. The Lord says that if you're in Christ, your spirit is without deceit. Yeah, 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 but, 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 but stop. Stop. Are you counting? Or are you believing in the Lord's accounting? Just, just check yourself. You see, many of us are fine with philosophically believing that we have been justified and are now righteous before God, but for some reason, it does not make its way into our real lives. I don't know, I don't know why that happens, but it doesn't make it out here. And you see, this is the reason that many of us Remain entangled in sin is because you still believe the enemy more than you believe Jesus. That's why you remain in sin. That's why you can't get unstuck. It's not because you're not doing all the right things. It's because you're not believing. So you know where this leads? not believing that there is no deceit in you, that God has said that you are righteous. This forensic declaration is not just high pie in the sky, but it is a real deal, on the boots on the ground type thing. You know what not believing that leads to? It, it leads to a life that keeps silent about sin. It, it leads to a life that avoids calling things Sin. Because you still believe that your righteousness is to be found in whether or not you lied. Your righteousness is to be found whether or not you looked at porn. Whether or not you said too much about the situation. Whether or not you were honest about your taxes. Whether or not you gave to the church. Whether or not you got angry. Whether, whether or not you did this or did that. You think your righteousness lies in those things. And you know what David says about the one who does that? The one who does that, who doesn't believe this good news but does that, who, who keeps silent about their sins, who avoids calling things sin, sin. Look at his personal testimony in verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning 
all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David says, when I didn't believe that God justifies the ungodly, I hid. I hid. I pretended like what I was doing wasn't that bad. I tried to justify myself. And my bones wasted away. <laughs> Makes me want to cry. Because here's the real reality. And I get to see this week after week, and it's crushing. Is that so many Christians are living in a way where your bones, your bones are wasting away when Jesus wants to set you free. See, when you try and do your own accounting, the hand of God will remain heavy upon you. And it will be heavier and heavier and heavier than you can ever imagine. And if you don't turn to Jesus, that hand will crush you. It will crush you. But Jesus is saying to you and me this morning, why do you feel the need to sit under the unbearable weight of my Father's hand when I have already been crushed by his hand for you? Why? Don't do this. Well, what do I do then? What do, what, what do I do? What does it mean to turn to Jesus? Well, look at verse 5. David said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not pretend it wasn't there or that it wasn't sin. I did not cover my iniquity, David says. Didn't try to cover it. Let me tell you something. If, if, if you want to know what covering your own sin is going to bring, then go and read Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem called The Raven. In that poem, what we see is a, a raven come to a burdened man. This, this burdened man looks to the raven in order to find release from his burden. But the only word that the raven gives him is what? Nevermore. Nevermore. And this takes the man from weak and weary to regretful and grief-stricken before passing into a frenzy and finally into madness. Post said the meaning of this poem is mournful and never-ending remembrance. How crushing. You try covering your own sin and you will never escape it, church. Never. Worse, it will ruin every part of you like a terminal illness. But David said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did God do? When he confessed his transgressions to the Lord, he forgave the iniquity of his sin. He forgave it. God forgives it. The enemy has us so worried about bringing things to God who is in the light, who is light. And meanwhile, David says, when I did this, he forgave me. Forgave me. He says Jesus releases the burden. He releases the burden. Jesus sets us free from guilt. Jesus removes our terminal illness of hopelessness. Jesus justifies the ungodly. Calls us family. Clothes us in righteousness. And places us at his table to feast forevermore. <laughs> That is good news. Now, just as Jesus told Peter upon his repentance to go and strengthen the brothers, look what David does in this psalm in verse 6. David turns to us now, and this is what David says. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
when you may be found, people hearing my voice, that time is now. If you feel the conviction of God on your soul, then Jesus is to be found. But, but, but i got to warn you, we are told in Scripture about a day that will come when you've resisted and you've resisted and you've tried to cover and done your own accounting for so long and then you go to seek repentance like Esau did and it's not there to be found. We do see that in Scripture. That's why David says, seek him, offer a prayer to him at a time that he may be found. Now I know and understand because I'm human just like you and I sin. What keeps many of us from turning to Jesus is we are scared to death of the consequences. Scared to death. Corey, you don't know what kind of fallout this is going to bring in my life. You don't know if I find out what kind of collateral damage will take place. You just don't have a clue, young man. I cannot let that happen. For my, for my kids, for my family, for my grandmother, for whoever. I can't let that happen. Don't be a fool. You cannot hold back the rush of great waters, nor the trouble that awaits you. But look what David says in verse 6b. Look down. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You think, you, you think that God is going to send his perfect son to be crushed on your behalf just so you can turn to him and be destroyed too? Of course not. No, the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 4.9, listen to this. Don't you listen to this? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Even struck down, but what? Not destroyed. <laughs> Christian, Christian, I'm pleading with you. Do not fear the loving and purifying discipline of your Father. Rather, be thankful that you have a perfect daddy who loves you and is going to bring forth the fullness of your happiness by making you holy. Give yourself to him. And you'll never regret, I promise, no one who has given themselves over to Jesus holy has ever had any regret. But those who don't, that's all they ever know. Regret is all they ever know. It's at this point, it's at this point in the psalm that we see a switch from David speaking to now God speaking. This is really neat. Look, look, look at what God says. He says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What does that mean, my eye upon you? That means intimately, church. Just like a good dad isn't a robot caring for his children as he's been wired to. No, he cares for each one of them intimately. He knows them, his eyes upon them. God says in verse 9, so be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. That's a key phrase which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Now we're going to dig in. Listen to me. Church, we are not to be people that have a hundred fences in our lives, or in David's words, curbed with bit and bridle, or we won't do right. That's not how we're to be. We are children that God wants to mature more and more into the perfect image of our elder brother Jesus 
who came to this world. Listen, Jesus came to this world eating and drinking, laughing and crying, befriending sinners, caring for outcasts, yet he was unstained by the world. Why? Why was he unstained by the world? Because he didn't believe the lies that this world told him. He believed his father. He trusted his father. Paul Tripp says this. Listen to this. When you believe that the perfect sacrifice of the completely righteous lamb fully satisfied the requirements of God and left you righteous and without penalty in his sight. Listen to what he says. You won't worry about God's rejection. You won't hide your sin. You won't do things to win God's favor. You won't cower in shame. You won't rationalize, excuse, or defend, or shift the blame. You won't pretend that you're better than you really are. You won't present arguments for righteousness. You won't fear being known or exposed. You won't compare the size of your sin to the size of someone else's sin. You won't parade your righteousness so it can be seen by others. You won't wonder if God is going to get exhausted with you because of how often you mess up. Paul Tripp says that all of these are acts and thoughts of gospel irrationality because you have been completely forgiven. Completely That is good news. And it's the hope for our sanctification, church. It's the, let me rephrase that. It's the only hope for our sanctification. That we would not be people who don't sin because we don't put ourselves around sin or merely because we've disciplined ourselves to death, but rather we would not sin because we have become people with understanding understanding, hearts transformed by the gospel, minds renewed by God's word, and affections changed to truly love God's law so much that we equate sinning with having a big glass of Clorox for lunch. It's absurdity. Nobody's going to do that today. And when our minds and our hearts and our affections have been sanctified, that's the way we'll look at sin. Did you know that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you? Not merely keep you from sinning, but rather make you a new creation that doesn't want to sin. (laughs) This is a much greater transformation. One that many of you probably can't even fathom. But, but, but let, me, let, me, let me tell you, uh, it won't happen overnight. It won't happen overnight. Just like my three-year-old will not have the wisdom of Roy Thompson next year. You, you laugh, but, 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 but you think this spiritually. Just like my three-year-old will not have the wisdom of Roy Thompson next year, neither will you be done sinning next year. Won't be the case. But here's, what I, my, here's my prayer for you. Is that you will believe more and more that God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> so that, so that, this is key, you don't live a life that is filled with smoke screens of discipline and morality, but you live a life characterized by the constant running to Jesus for help because you screwed up again and again. That delights and gives great glory to your God. Listen to David finish this psalm. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Therefore, therefore, because of that reason, be glad in the Lord. (laughs) And rejoice, church, O righteous, O righteous. You hear that? What do he call you? What do he call you? You drug yourself in here this morning. You, you walked on in here, many of you. 
burdened by your sin because you did something last night, you even did something this morning, you smacked your kid or you yelled at your spouse or you didn't get up and read the scriptures or whatever it is. You drug yourself here this morning feeling so unrighteous, yet David in this psalm says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. O righteous. Man. And shout for joy. He goes a step further. All you upright in heart. <laughs> ah. It's hard to believe. I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this is way harder than being gooder. This is way harder. Because what God has said about me because of Christ's work is so the opposite of me. <laughs> if I'm being honest. But that's what he's called us to believe. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song so that you can shout for joy to the one, for the one who justifies the ungodly. And if you need to repent, if you need to turn from yourself and turn from Jesus today, I want you to come find me and just grab me. And, and you don't have to say much, you just weep, I know why you're there, right? Come grab Carlton, come grab one of the other pastors, maybe even somebody around you, but don't wait. Father, we thank you for this good news. God, you are so good. God, I have tried my best, God, to get these radical ideas across to your people today. God, because I believe them, Lord. I believe this. And I show that I don't believe when I, when I walk in unbelief. But God... I believe this, and I want us all to believe this, because it's when we believe this, God, that you will be glorified, you will be honored, and we will be saved and sanctified. Oh, God, would you help our unbelief today? We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who will hold us fast. Amen.